Hey, buddy, what's the difference between the Soviet Union and the United States? Well, Gorbachev could get elected president in the United States. Now, that happens to be a very popular Soviet joke told in the streets of Moscow, Leningrad, everywhere in the year 1990. And that's one of the little squibs in a compendium, a book that's almost a definitive book of what goes on in Russia today by Hedrick Smith. For so many years, the New York Times correspondent there and previous other books on Russia. I was guest on this program before. The most recent book is called The New Russians, and of course, it's what's happened since Gorbachev took over. And we're thinking that, that joke almost tells a great deal, doesn't it? It tells all kinds of things. It tells the same thing that you get told by the fact that Gorbachev wins the Nobel Peace Prize but can't afford to go pick it up because it's so unpopular at home for him to get a big stage, to get a big play, to be popular abroad, but not to put food on the table at home. People are saying, enough already, Misha. Uh, let's get on with it here. Perestroika has been going on here now nearly six years, and we've had elections, and we've had a freer press, and we've had a bit of cooperatives, we've had a bit of a private sector, but we can't find enough bread and sugar and meat and yeah. clothes on the shelves. So we come to that big problem. Uh, remarkable popularity, probably... Uh, the man of the half century, as far as the world, the rest of the world, outside the Soviet Union. No question about concerned. it. I mean, look what he did in Eastern Europe. Look what he did in Afghanistan. They're going to go sign another arms yeah. agreement in uh, in February yeah. now, they say. I mean, it's uh, remarkable. So he's changed, in a sense, the key figure in ending the Cold War. Actually, the obvious question, to just dispose of this first, the Cold War is pretty much stone cold dead. Yeah, I, th I think this, uh, the Cold War is over. Uh, Soviet troops obviously can't fight in, in Europe, and Europe was the place where people worried about the Cold War. They can't fight in Europe because uh, they got no support from the local countries, Germany, Poland, uh, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and so forth. Uh, and also, you know, studs, I'm not sure Americans understand, but the Soviet army is not really an effective fighting force now. You know, you've seen all the ethnic conflict, Lithuanians, Estonians, Latvians, Armenians, Ukrainians, Uzbeks, all saying they want a chunk of territory, they want to break away from Moscow, they want to do something different. You have all that tension boiling inside the army, just as you do in the rest of the society. So it's not exactly an army that you could send abroad to do anything, let alone what, what you can't do mm -hmm. in Eastern Europe. Uh, they still got the nuclear weapons, but that's the only thing. And if we can reduce those yeah. stockpiles on both sides, then you're in a different You know, I was game. thinking, as, as you say this, and I was reading the book, I was also thinking of the United States. That is, uh, if that is so, and quite obviously it is, isn't it time that we cut our military budget a bit too so Absolutely. that some of the dough could go to housing and education yeah. and, and nurseries? And so there we go again. See, I think this book should be read uh, with, with two eyes. Sure. One eye, see, pretty rough situation there. Pretty, pretty goofed up. We have to talk about the, uh, the distribution and uh, the crisis that is there and the juggling, the tightrope walking of them. At the same time, hey, let's see, how does this affect the United States? Now, should our attitude also not change to some extent? Sure. When it comes to we got a new reality. Yeah. We have a new ball game. And, yeah. and you know what's interesting? It strikes me, Studs, that the people are way ahead of the politicians on this. People understand this. They, they know that reality has changed over there. Uh, they're trying to weigh rather carefully, should we plunge in? How much help we can we give? Will it be a waste? Why don't they cut back on their military spending and their KGB and that kind of stuff? So there's a 
a mixture of the impulse to be generous. There's a, a mixture of the impulse to, to help along the process of reform. I think the process is more important than Gorbachev himself is. But there's also a certain yeah. wariness, and it's understandable. I think right. people, But I think people are much more ready to cope with this than the government in Washington, whether it's Congress or the president. Yeah, I, I sense this, too. Absolutely. This seems to be the case. When I first made that discovery, some years ago, there was a book author luncheon. It was number... When did Gorbachev come in? 1985. Five years ago. It was just about that time, maybe six at most. This woman is a rifle association. She has, you know, you're, you're, you'd get limousines when you go on tour, uh, different cities. A limo driver picks you up. This woman owned her, owned this car, <laughs> this fleet. And, but she's also rifle association. I, I could tell she's very, pretty much right wing. But she says, what do you think of that man, Mr. Gorbachev? I said, sounds pretty interesting. She says, I like him very much. Sound like Maggie Thatcher saying, I can do business with him. Right. Well, the fact <clears> is, <throat> she dug something. Remember, she was of the right, very much. Yeah. She dug something, that there was a very basic change. Well, there was a change, Studs, uh, that goes way beyond Gorbachev. You yeah. know, this thing actually had been building for years. It had been building secretly, quietly, very hard for us to see on the outside. And even when you could see it, and I could see tips of it, even back in the 70s, very hard to tell how extensive it was. When I talked to Solzhenitsyn uh, back in the early 70s or Andrei Sakharov, the dissident physicist, or other intellectuals, I could never tell whether I was talking to 0.01% of the country or 10%, and that's an enormous difference. Yeah, yeah. Turns out, not maybe then, but yeah. certainly by the end of the 70s, yeah, maybe 10% of the population felt this way, and the leadership is beginning to say, hey, Andropov, head of the KGB, uh, uh, Garkov, one of the chief of the Soviet general staff, Gorbachev, others are saying, wait a minute, we're falling way behind here. Our economy's not working. Uh, we're going to be behind the Americans, the West Europeans, the Japanese, even the Chinese. we got to get going. we got to do something different. So as you're saying this, we think now of the book, and you go back to begin, you speak of the five centuries of absolutism, and Gorbachev was sort of a Martin Luther, in a way, nailing these things to the wall, as he did yeah. on G TV. Got to purify the, the system. It went and corrupt. then we come to beginnings, how it come. And the various, you spoke of the 10%, perhaps more, aware that of intellectuals, and his own influences. You spoke of the woman economist, you know, Tatyana Zaslavskaya. Yeah. She played an influence on him. Interesting. You know, yeah. she's the first person to use the word perestroika. To talk about that. She wrote a memo back in early 83. They had a study. This is all going on in, mm. the, in the bowels of the mm -hmm. Soviet system. Mm -hmm. we, we're all watching the stuff mm -hmm. at the top, and we don't see much of it. But down there, she and two or 300 other scholars got together and wrote papers about what the heck was going wrong with the Soviet system. It had been building this, this feeling in the late 70s, early 80s under Brezhnev, who was a walking corpse, and made the whole country feel as though it was a walking corpse. And, and they begin to analyze. The workers aren't working anymore. You can't shake the fist at them. You can't frighten them in the old Stalinist way. You can't just give orders and they perform. And there's mass alcoholism and the economy's not performing right. The rate of growth is slowing down. All these things. And she said, what we need is perestroika. This memo gets its way all the way to Gorbachev, who by then is way up in the upper reaches. He hasn't reached the absolute top, but he's up there, number two, yeah. number three guy in the system. So it's percolating yeah. inside there. These people are, are kicking around ideas. And Gorbachev's interesting in that period because he's one of the few Communist Party leaders who's ever reached out to intellectuals. But it isn't just Gorbachev. Yeah. I mean, that's my point. My point yeah. is there are a lot of other yeah. people who, are, who have got these ideas. And Studs, one thing you never think about in America. Gorbachev is the leader of the country. And the first time there's been a full deck 
since the revolution. Think about it. The best and the brightest, Dave Halberstam's term, the best and the brightest have been eliminated for decades. They get knocked off in the yeah. revolution and the Civil War. They perish in the, in the collectivization of agriculture. Then they get wiped out again in Stalin's uh, uh, purges in the 1930s. We're going from the teens to the 20s to the 30s. Then they die in the war in the 40s. And then just for good measure, Stalin has another kick of purges in the 50s, uh, late 40s and early 50s, and then he dies in 53. If you're born in 1950, today in 1990, you're 40 years old. This is the first generation to reach 40 with the best and the brightest still around. I mean, yeah. it changes the whole dynamics so of the society. Right. So in now we come to a certain continuity. Khrushchev plays a role here. In other words, Gorbachev as a kid grew up with Khrushchev's revelations. Absolutely. That's you know, a big thing. It, I think of U.S. kids and Reagan. It's a different category entirely. But I'm thinking of a similar mindset. Well, think think of all the Democrats who were shaped by Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah, of course. Uh, think well. Think of people who were affected uh, by Reagan. It's a different yeah. mindset. But we think of generations. Yeah. Uh, you live through the Depression, World yeah. War II, Korean War, Vietnam War, whatever. Absolutely. All right. These Gorbachev and his gang now in their mid late fifties, early sixties, they're the children of Khrushchev. In fact, you know what they call themselves. In Russian, they call themselves Dieti Dvadsatavisiezda Komunistichki Party Sovietskavisayuza. Children of the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. The 20th Congress <laughs> yeah. is the Congress at which yeah. Khrushchev delivered the secret speech in February right. 1956 saying to the party faithful, hey, Stalin was a bad guy. Yeah. He wiped out the best and the brightest in the army, in the party, in the government. That shook the foundations of faith, and then Khrushchev began all that experimentation in art, Solzhenitsyn, Sakharov, Yevtushenko, Vaznesensky, all those things happened. And it gets snuffed out. But Gorbachev and his gang got that germ, got that idealism, and they got caught up in that. So we are speaking of generations. That's exactly right. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, Turgenev, think of it, yeah. fathers and sons. Yeah. It's a great old theme in, in Russian literature. And Gorbachev is part of that generation which comes to, of age. 1985, the mantle passes from the old Brezhnev yeah. generation to Gorbachev, and these guys have got the germ that goes back to you Khrushchev. Know, funny, as you talk, and I think of your book, The New Russians, of my guest, Hedrick Smith, analogies always come to mind. They're not exact, but they're analogous to some extent. Well, you, spent, uh, you, you mentioned Roosevelt a moment ago. People grew up under Roosevelt, and others, a wholly different mindset, grew up under Reagan. And so there, under Khrushchev, wholly different under Stalin. Uh, I was thinking of the, you said, you spoke of Rosa, I thought of the New Deal. You have mentioned something, Gorbachev was gathering a brain trust. Absolutely. Brain trust, of course, is a New Deal word associated right. with FDR and Rex Tugwell and all those guys. Absolutely. So that's what's happening there. Well, not only that, but if you look at it, Roosevelt was, uh, in my estimation, and Jim Burns and a lot of other people who know much more about him than I do, essentially say that Roosevelt was gra grafting onto capitalism a lot of features or certain features of socialism in order to save the capitalist system. The social security, unemployment insurance, regulations on the stock market, and so on and so on and so on. So Gorbachev is grafting onto the communist system, the socialist system, elements of capitalism and democracy in order to save the hey, socialist that's system. That's, you know, that's that kind of what's going good. on. That is that does hold, doesn't it? Yeah, that's what's happening. Yeah. Uh, and what's going on, though, is that there are other people now who've come along like Boris Yeltsin, uh, the boss of the Russian yeah. Republic, and the, uh, who got into a fight with Gorbachev, got thrown out as the party boss of, of uh, Moscow. 
The reformers in the cities who now run the city government in Moscow, in Leningrad, in Sverdlovsk, Volgograd, I could rattle off 20 names, some of which you would never have heard of, but important mm -hmm. cities. These people want to go further. Yeah. In a way, they're, they're not quite yet Gorbachev's yeah. political children, mm -hmm. but they're, some of them are his yeah. peers in age, some of them younger, mm -hmm. and they want to go further. They're saying, wait a minute, Misha, that's a halfway measure. Yeah. Uh, let's really go for market reform. Let's change yeah. the pricing system. Let's sell the land to the farmers. Let's privatize the industry. Let's set up a private banking system, and on and on and on. And he's a bit reluctant yeah. here. He's, yeah. the, he's still caught. He's still a guy who's half got half a foot in the old system and half a foot yeah. out. Just as I said, he's trying to graft things on without letting go of the old system. Which leads to something. Perhaps we'll take our first break now. At least, as you mentioned uh, giving the land privatization. We have to talk about this whole situation, whole matter of co-ops. We know about collective farming and the disaster that came. But co-ops and pieces of... Because that leads... Again, I think of this parallel. Throughout the book, I thought a new deal. But I want you to talk about that, and I'm reminded of something that our Roosevelt uh, official spoke about. When, of the Farm Security Administration back in the 30s on the, almost the identical point. <laughs> uh, we're talking That's to Hedrick Smith and uh, the book you know, for years. The, you, you went to uh, Moscow, what, 71? 71 through 74 for the New York Times. 74 for the Times, Times Bureau Chief, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. then you were back and forth, of course. Mm -hmm. And the New Russians is, is the... It's got every, it's really, it, it's compendious, yeah. if there's such a word, but it's okay. Yeah, it's well, that. It's got I hope there are a lot of good and, stories in and, it. And uh, lots like you. Well, that's come you to like a bunch storytellers. of and, and that, by the way, the stories in it are quite remarkable. Yeah. Some very funny ones. Yeah. A lot of jokes. Yeah. I suppose jokes you know, and for street talk. Well, it's jokes is street talk, and studs, you know, when, when, uh, when people are suppressed politically, yeah. they resort to humor as an outlet. Yeah. And the Russians have, have a very highly yeah. developed sense of political humor. It's, it's one of the most endearing traits. I suppose before I break the one about three guys are stuck in the uh, train stalling. Stalin, uh, Stalin, who, Brezhnev, and Khrushchev. Yeah. How's that so, go? Well, what happens is the and, and by the way, there's a kicker now about Gorbachev, which I'll add for you. There's a fourth one. Um, this is a story about Soviet political leaders, which Soviets tell. One is uh, it, it's about a train. They're all on the train together, and the train stops. Stalin is in command. He says, "Shoot the engineers, uh, the chief engineer, and send everybody else off to the gulag." Train starts again, and this time uh, Khrushchev's in charge, and the train stalls again, and Khrushchev says. Uh, rehabilitate all the engineers who were sent off to the gulag by Stalin, bring them back, let's get them to work again, let's get the train moving. So the train gets moving again, then it stalls. This time Brezhnev is in charge and he says, pull down the blinds and let's pretend the, the train is moving. It gets moving yeah. again and then Gorbachev is there and he says, uh, the train stalls and he says, well, let's have a meeting and I'll talk about why the train has stopped. <laughs> They added that one. And, uh, <laughs> so that's part of it. This is the break we're taking with Hedrick Smith. The book is The New Russians and Random House, the publishers. So resuming with Hedrick Smith and The New Russians, that is, the Russia since uh, Gorby, Gorbachev, and his popularity, as we know, is worldwide, except mm. <laughs> where he lives. And so the question of economics, Paris strike. I suppose it, I'm sure the listeners know Glasnost deals with 
freedom of thought and expression. Glass means what? Openness? Means, uh, means voice. Voice. It means voice. Uh-huh. Glass no- literally yeah. means voice. voice. Having a voice. Yeah. So that's the voicelessness have a voice. A perestroika deals with economic aspects. Right. Stroika it. means to build, peri yeah. means to rebuild. Yeah. So it's the rebuilding, the and reconstruction. So, uh, the matter of uh, agriculture and the matter of collectivization through the years fell on its everything. Yeah. yeah. You know, Studs, I traveled uh, to the Soviet Union nine times in the last couple of years, traveled about 40,000 miles, talked to people high and low, Gorbachev's economic advisors and others, and I kept asking people, why didn't you start this reform at the beginning the way Deng Xiaoping did in China? Deng Xiaoping told people they could leave the communes, the farmers, they could leave the communes and they could grow land, uh, grow crops on their own land. They'd have to deliver a certain quota of their production to the state to help feed the poor people. But anything over that, they could take to the markets and sell to people in the cities. The result was a tremendous burst of economic and agricultural growth in China. Uh, and by with the way, political repression. With, yeah, with political repression. Yeah. It's wacko, just the opposite yeah, I mean, in the Soviet you Union. You point that out here. Just For the moment, you don't mind if we have these parenthetical comments. Absolutely, we'll great. We'll come back to that. Yeah. Uh, Difficult time there in the Soviet Union, economic stuff on its face. China doing fairly well, we're told. Yes. Uh, But politically, Soviet Union openness, glassness. China, precisely the opposite, repression. So you have political repression there with the economic leap to some extent. You have economic stagnation here with a a, uh, free expression leap. Absolutely. Well, Gorbachev is a much more political man than he is an economic man. He understands politics. He moves naturally with politics. He's at home with it. Uh, And I think that's one reason. Another reason is, you know, he has a very peculiar, almost symbiotic political partnership with Rizhkov, the prime minister, uh, who is also of his generation, who came from the industrial sector, was a factory manager, big plant, Uromash, out in the the Sverdlovs, the Ural Mountain region then became a state planner and so forth. And Rizhkov is really the defender of the yeah. old economic system. So sitting right there yeah. in his family, uh, his political family, at the table with him every yeah. day, Gorbachev's trying to talk about reform and Rizhkov is trying to drag his feet. He says, yes, yeah. yes, I agree, and then, but he's protecting the ministry. And so you got the pressure from the other side, let's get going, get, get moving. Yeah, yeah. And, and you got these guys saying, let's don't go so fast. I think that's been a real problem for him, yeah. and he has a lot of trouble getting rid of Rizhkov. He, he's an yeah. old friend, you notice it yeah. comes up all the time, let's fire yeah. Rizhkov, but he won't do it. Yeah. Uh, typical. But why didn't he do what Deng Xiaoping did? I asked Aganbegyan, the Armenian economist who's very close to Gorbachev, why didn't he do it? Well, Aganbegyan says, you know, our peasants are different from the Chinese peasants. Chinese have been under communism fewer years, 30 years instead of 70 years. They've still got the knack of private farming. There may be something to that, uh, but I don't think that's the real reason. I think the reason was that uh, initially Gorbachev came to power without a plan. For a year or two, he fiddled around doing conservative things. He didn't even move towards perestroika until 1987 in any vigorous way, late 86, early 87. So he didn't have a plan. Deng Xiaoping had a plan. Second thing is I think there were a lot of people in the Politburo. I just mentioned Rizhkov, Ligachev, others, and to some degree Gorbachev himself who had a real ideological hang-up about, about turning over the land back to the private farmers. Gorbachev has said just recently, you know, one of my grandfathers organized the collective farms down in my home region in Provolnoy and Stavropol, southern Russia. Another, my father worked as a tractor driver. Gorbachev himself, as a teenager, won a national medal for wheat harvesting mm. uh, in his, in his uh, early years working on the farm. 
He said, how can I turn my back on my father? How can I turn my back on my grandfather? So, I mean, he's a man of his times. Khrushchev, that whole input made him a reformer. The connection with his father, particularly on the agriculture, his grandfather, it made him sort of conservative. So he's, he's of two minds. Yeah. He goes back and forth yeah. between the two. And you see that going on. So anyway, they haven't tried it. They're afraid of it. Uh, Yeltsin has kind of plunged ahead. The Russian Republic Parliament has just recently passed a rule, a law, that the Russian Republic can sell the land to the farmers. Now, they can't sell it to anybody else, but they can farm it on their own. Uh, so we'll have to see whether or not that starts to happen. There's a lot of fear in the countryside. The farmers themselves aren't sure. They, well, maybe the state well, will take it back. Well, that leads to a question of this privatization. We hear a lot of that here, more and more here, this privatization of what had been public or quasi-public, right. whether it be hospitals or prisons or everything right. else. But private. Right. Uh, that matter of privatization, uh, isn't there that middle aspect uh, of cooperatives? Right. Very Co important. Cooperatives. Is, are, there, are there many there? Yes, there are. There are many more than people realize. There, some of them are real cooperatives. I've, I've been to factories where, where four or 500 people, the workers, the managers, everybody, they own a chunk of it. And that's a real cooperative, at least in my understanding of the word. I've been to others where it is simply a fig leaf. Uh, it's a mom, pop, and junior. They own it. You have to have three people mm -hmm. to have a cooperative. Mm -hmm. The family owns it, and they have other people or their employees, yeah. and it's just simply a fig leaf for private enterprise. So it's mm -hmm. kind of a mixed thing. Mm -hmm. Gorbachev has been willing to buy that. Why? Because Lenin bought that. Back in the early 20s, mm -hmm. Lenin had cooperatives. He had private farms. It's interesting. He hasn't mm -hmm. been willing to go as far as Lenin on private farms. But there's a line in Gorbachev that says, let's go back and take what Lenin tried near the end of his life in the early 20s, as you well know. So these cooperatives exist. And you find grocery stores. You can get your watch repaired. You can cleaning establishments, brick factories, build highways, textile factories. Uh, build apartment buildings. They're particularly strong in the construction area. There are 5 million people. Most Americans don't know that. There are 5 million people working in what is now the cooperative sector. This is the beginnings mm -hmm. of a private sector mm -hmm. uh, in the Soviet Union. It's still only 4 or 5 percent of the workforce, but nonetheless very important. And I've talked to some of those guys, and some of them are, are idealists, and they'll say, well, I'm a sort of a capitalist socialist, if you will. I'm halfway in between. Mm. And they're very smart. The good ones are very smart politically. They keep good relations with the Communist Party bosses if they're still in power in some local region, but they're also moving yeah. away from that old system. It just hasn't developed fast enough. It hasn't been able to fill in the gap. The old system economically is, is declining. The farmers in the countryside this winter, uh, from what I've heard, are holding back the food because they expect the prices to go up. And mm. so they're not shipping it through the old state system, mm. Mm. so the old state system yeah. doesn't work. You can't get it yeah. in the state stores. But the private economic system yeah. isn't big enough yet to handle the traffic. Several questions come up as you're saying that. I should ask about that distribution. Something's cockeyed somewhere. It, it, it is more than cockeyed. It is, it's it's cockamamie, I think, is the word. Yeah. Uh, what Would there be old liners somewhere possibly sabotaging on sure. a grand scale? Yeah, there could be. There certainly probably are in the, in the industrial sector. I think that's probably less true in the farm sector. I think in the farm sector, it's people are, uh, are wary of what's going on in the economy, and farmers are doing what they do all over the world. Yeah. They're holding their crops back, taking care of themselves and their own local community, mm. uh, and waiting to see if the prices don't go up and they can't get paid more. Studs, think about one thing. Think about one thing. Now, we're reading reports and we're seeing things on television every night that show empty shelves and people frustrated, furious, fighting, shouting in Moscow and Leningrad, right? We hear they're afraid of starvation and famine, but we don't hear there is yet starvation and famine. There are a lot of difficulties, but not famine. 
What that means is those people are getting food somehow, even though there's no food in those stores. All right, Where they're getting it is in the counter economy. They're getting it through private channels. They're getting it through the deals. Barter swaps. Uh, a, a factory will produce trucks. It'll ship a bunch of trucks out to a state farm, and in return it'll get several tons of potatoes, which it will then sell directly to its factory workers. It never goes in the state stores. City of Moscow will do the same thing. It'll make a private deal. It'll send a whole bunch of workers out there or students out to a farm to help them harvest their crop, and in return they'll get yeah. 50 tons of cabbages. So there's a lot of stuff so going on. So there's bootlegging on a grand it, it scale. massive bootlegging. That's yeah. exactly the right yeah. word. Ma it's not even black market. Yeah. It's just bootlegging. No, it's dealing of, on the side. In reading it, I was thinking one word, bootlegging. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'd know that from, yeah. uh, from a certain <laughs> era in your but life. But that's it, Russians though. call it nalieva, on nalieva. the left. You do it on the left, this which the, means under the table. Yeah. This is the, under the table. Under the table. You know, uh, what was uh, less than a year ago? Harrison Salisbury had a group to go there regularly. Number one at this hotel, Hotel Ukraine. No, no, that was the Ukraine, other another hotel. Yeah. Uh, this was in uh, Moscow, and so the young waiter there says, "You want some caviar?" I said, "No, you know, because you know it's, it'd be bootlegging stuff." And he says, twenty dollars." And Vera Dunham, you know the old yeah, name, sure, Vera, I know Vera Dunham. Absolutely, that's a hundred dollar thing, you know, and mm. and so. He goes along with that. The guy who's watching him is the manager. It didn't mean anything. And he's saying, other guys, 20 bucks for the caviar. And the manager's just nodding. It's so open. It's going on all the time. Yeah. Studs, it was going on in the 70s uh, when I was there, and I wrote about it in The Russians, uh, and I called it the counter-economy. And it, at that time, it probably... Uh, comprised 10% of the national GMP. I mean, billions and billions yeah. of rubles. Now it's much bigger. It's probably 25% of GMP. Nobody knows precisely. Yeah. But what's interesting is that while Gorbachev and Yeltsin and the Democratic reformers and the economists and the hardliners are all sitting up there at the top arguing about what the policy ought to be, people are changing their behavior down at the grassroots. And in a way, reform is going on even though it's not being yeah. called that. In fact, it's condemned and that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, people are, in effect, yeah. changing the economy right while we're watching it go on. And, uh, and the arguments going on at the top, it's irrelevant. Yeah, so there's a change from below. That's right. Now, the big difference is if there's a cynicism that sets in. There was the cynicism in the whole Brezhnev era, of course. Mm -hmm. But if the change is cynical, it's you think there's a whole new generation of young well, I think the younger people are much more inclined to uh, either believe in the market reforms or better, more practically, simply to see that they can begin to get what they want. It's not a question of idealism. Uh, many of them do think that, that, that capitalism or some kind of mixed economy is better than the old state capitalism or state socialism under Stalin. But I think it's much more a pragmatic thing. But, but, but there is a cynicism, and there is a danger at the moment that... that uh, that reform will lose support yeah. because life is so hard. See, they haven't really got reforms in place, studs, and yet there's a there's a sense on the part of the people in the cities that this is that the problems they have today yeah. are all the fault of the reforms. If Gorbachev just hadn't changed yeah. things, uh, and and uh, the economy hadn't been opened up, and the press and and all that kind of stuff, that things would be. Not really good, but they'd be like the old way you could count on certain supplies. You could get yeah. sugar, you could get tea, and you could have a house, you didn't have to, uh, your apartment, you didn't have to worry about uh, getting fired from your job. Now they're worried about yeah. unemployment and all this other stuff. And so you have Andreeva, Nina Andreeva, 
uh, representing old-time Stalinists who are saying this is ridiculous. Ah, you found Nina. That's that's the hanging on, isn't it? You found Nina, absolutely. See, I mean, the temptation is to be writing just about the folks who are moving things in the direction we'd like to see it move. But there are a lot of people on the other side. If there are 15 or 20 percent of the people who want to see it move in the direction of market reforms and pluralism and democracy, there are 15 or 20 percent of the people on the other side who are pretty tough, pretty Uh, hard line. Are they older people? They tend to be older people. Of course. These are the people who are saying, wait a minute. You're saying Stalin was bad. You're saying Stalin sent all these people to their deaths. You're saying Stalin screwed up the economy and the economy has the slogan over there is the bureaucratic command structure of Stalin. They mean the Stalinist system. You're saying Stalin created all this and this is keeping us back and so forth. Wait a minute. We lived under Stalin. We made our sacrifices. We worked hard. Russia was a backward nation. It's now become a superpower. The world trembles when we shake our fist. We've got cosmonauts. We've got missiles. We've got a better educational system than we had under the czars. Are you going to tell us all that was a waste, that our lives were a waste? I mean, it's somewhat understandable. These people are saying, that wait, our my life, whole you, life. You're just it. hitting something, that our oh. lives were a waste. That's that we right. lived a lie. That's hard to take. It's very, very hard to take. We lived a lie. We, you mean you're saying to us we were dupes? We made sacrifices and we were fools, not on your life. So this woman, Nina Andreeva, who is a, uh, an institute chemistry teacher, but basically, uh, and she comes out of middle America and middle Russia. You, you see these see, people. You're hitting these parallels. That's actually stunning to me. You know? Yeah, I mean, they, they, she comes out I've of. I've seen Nina Andreeva here. Yeah. Oh, with middleman also very, very right, of course. Yeah. But by God. Don't knock America. Don't yeah. knock that's what it. we did. Love uh, it or leave it. That's right. Exactly. You got it. Love it or leave it. And that's exactly where Nina Andreevna comes from. She writes this massive letter denouncing all the reformers and the radicals, all but calling Gorbachev dirty names. In this letter back in March of 88, she has now publicly called Gorbachev dirty names. But in 88, that was a little dangerous. And criticizing the whole thing, it gets published. In a big newspaper, Yegor Ligachev, the number two guy in the system, says this is a great letter. Gorbachev is out of the country. A lot of my friends, your friend, Vitaly Karotich, mm. he says, oh, my God, this is the beginning of a rollback. <laughs> I'm going to be sent to I'm going to be sent to I talked to Karotich one night. He's, he's the editor of Aganyok, as you know, one of the most liberal weekly magazines under Perestroika, the flagship of Perestroika. And he says to me, you know, I packed my bag. Now, in the Soviet Union, when they yeah. say, I packed my bag, they don't mean I'm taking a quick trip to Broadway to New York. They mean they packed that little bag of very precious things you get ready for when the police come to get you and they're about to send you off to Siberia. He said, I packed my bag. I thought it was all going to start again. It didn't. Gorbachev reversed yeah. it. Uh, Nina Andreevna got cursed out in Pravda. But she's still there. Yeah. Those Stalinists are still there. That part is there. And we're going to hear uh, our friend's voice in a moment after this break, uh, Vitaly Karatich word about him in that unique journal called Oganyuk. But there's one thing about the students. Uh, A lot of the students like the market economy. Yuri Eric Foner's piece in Harper's last month, Eric Foner, sort of a liberal left American historian teaching there four years, he's actually stunned in in the Harper's pieces. They think that all the way, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. laissez-faire, here we come. Well, and he's yeah. absolutely stunned by it, extremely so. Yeah. They, well, what's happened is the, the image has flopped. Yeah. Uh, Russians, ordinary Russians, in my experience, didn't believe all the bad things Soviet propaganda said about America anyway. They liked Americans. But nonetheless, the image was of a society which, uh, America, their image of America in the 70s was of a society torn by racial 
uh, tensions, and this was not long after the civil rights movement, the killing of Martin Luther King and that kind of stuff, so they had a lot of reason for thinking that. A nation plagued by poverty and unemployment, because we have all our poverty statistics, which we run, a high cost of medicine, high cost of education, capitalists profiting off the back of laborers. Now it's flopped. And they say, my God, you've got an economy that works. Uh, everybody lives well. You've got social insurance. Uh, things are hunky-dory over there, and look how terrible they are here. So it was unreal uh, one way, and it was un it's now it's unreal the other way. And it is kind of astonishing. But it is an indication of how much has happened, how yeah. much has changed, particularly among the young people. Yeah. We're talking to Hedrick Smith. As you can gather, it's a very exciting uh, book, but uh, also the insights are there. And what has happened? The New Russians is the book. And uh, Random House of the Publishers will resume for the third lap in a moment. And so for the third lap, we're talking about openness and journalism and what's happening in the newspapers with Moscow News or this is it a monthly? I forgot. Ogonyuk. Weekly. It's, it's a weekly. It's kind of like li the and old life I know and you know Vitaly Karotich is the editor. Yeah. So I'm sitting at the house with him. This is about six months ago. I said, tell me, is the KGB watching you and me? And I said, does it matter? <laughs> it doesn't matter. He says, and then I asked him about the military. We know well, a word or two about him from you, Hedrick, yeah. and then we'll hear his well, voice. Well, Karotich is interesting because, you know, back in the Brezhnev era, he wrote, he did what everybody else did, including Gorbachev, by the way. He played the game. He played along. He wrote flattering things about Brezhnev. Gorbachev made speeches that were flattering about Brezhnev. You see pictures of, of uh, Gorbachev standing near Brezhnev, applauding when mm -hmm. Brezhnev is getting medals. I mean, the, the name of the game in Soviet life was play along publicly and, and then privately maybe you talk What's to your friends. What's that phrase, who's winning? Tokavo. Who's, who's, who, who's over whom? Literally, it means who whom, but it means who's on top. Who's on <laughs> you know, top. It's a very That's simple, it. primitive uh, political phrase. Chicago politicians yeah, would right. understand I was, I was thinking the very thing. <laughs> it's very who's Chicago. got the clout now? Yeah, who's got it? Who, who do you have to worry about? Yeah. Who's on top? Anyway, Karotich uh, played that game. But then Gorbachev brought him in, and particularly Alexander Yakovlev, who is an unsung hero of Perestroika. People in this country don't know him, but he is the spirit behind a lot of the reforms in the press, political reforms, very close colleague of Gorbachev, and much more willing to experiment even than Gorbachev is. He brought Karotich up from the Ukraine. Karotich is a Ukrainian to take charge of this national magazine, which had been a disaster. I remember when I was in Moscow, you could buy you could buy Oganyok anytime you wanted because it was so unpopular. Just lay there at mm. the newsstands, right? Karotich turned it around, made it an investigative magazine, exposed crime and prostitution and drugs and AIDS and, and talked to prison guards uh, who had uh, killed people in the Stalinist era and who wanted to confess and apologize to the people. I mean, all kinds of stuff. It just filled with everything. Suddenly, Aganyak goes from a circulation of a half a million to three and a half million. They can't get enough paper to meet the circulation. Very popular, you know, flagship of, yeah. of Perestroika. Terrific, and, and Karotich is a big hero to an awful lot of people. Yeah. And very close to, they, they, they ran unbelievable stories about the Afghan war. Uh, With that young uh, Young Borovic, Artyom Borovic. Yeah. I also write about him. Yeah. His dispatches were yeah. incredible. Uh, very candid, very frank, very blunt, brutal, and uh, it had a lot to do with changing public opinion in the Soviet Union yeah. about the Afghan war. So this is, here he is, and I was sitting in his apartment, simple, modest place, have his wife's little supper. And here's, he's talking about, he's talking about uh, generals, uh, an expose. Right. And here it is, we hear his voice. But you see what's interesting. Our uh, vice ministers of defense spent more than 600,000 for building their summer houses. 
600,000 from military budget. We catch them on this, but it was impossible to judge them, to arrest them, to do something serious with them, because as all generals, they are out of law, and when you start to criticize them, they start to tell you that you're anti-patriotic, that they are defend your country, and then I ask them the most terrible question. Try to ask this question to your American generals. Who want to attack us? Who? Who is this idiot who want to attack this half-destroyed country without real economy, without real agriculture? Who want to destroy it? Who want to attack it? Who want to have it? In this moment, they always stopped. And they tell that all patriots must defend their country, and you must pay for your army. I think now in America, in the United States, and in my country, our generals start to be the most unhappy part of our societies. They call me once more, they yes, start to be yeah, once, uh, one of the unhappiest part of this society, because they must have enemy to have so many weapons. They have so many missiles of <laughs> tanks. You realize you're talking about, you sound like an editor such as the United States has never had. You're talking about the United States right now. That uh, kind of editor challenging no, no. the army the way he is. I tell you why I tell about this. Because I have uh, an impression that sometimes our generals and your generals feel one another better than so-called liberals. On last talks in Vienna on disarmament, Soviet military part of delegations tell that they want to that they want Soviet foreign ministry part to go out from the room and to leave them together with American generals because they want to talk between specialists. Now, it's great. You see, American generals for Soviet generals were closer than even Soviet... And, of course, he goes into the CIA <laughs> and the KGB. These yeah. two guys need each other. Right. And then I'm saying, well, maybe we ought to get wise and put both uh, both groups of bums out of work you know, so they can find some honest labor. You yeah, know. Absolutely. But that is so, isn't it? Yes, there's no question. And there, there are... Uh, I don't want to overdo it, Studs, because there are a lot of differences between Russians and Americans that come out of history. But you're absolutely right. There are some mirror images here. There, And as Karotich says, uh, the generals on both sides need each other to justify their being important generals and getting huge expenditures. I have many Americans say to me, why should we help the Soviets with food aid now because they're spending so much money on their arms? Uh, and they're still spending the money. And the answer is, you know, they're not going to start spending a heck of a lot less money, although their defense expenditures like ours are going down. But they're not going to reduce it radically until we do. I mean, Bush and Gorbachev have got to agree to throw a lot of those old nuclear weapons away. We're still testing new warheads right now in Nevada underground. For what? And the same thing on the other side. Of course, you're hitting a key right there. See, this is... Uh, in th These are the insights in your book, very implied or specifics, but this whole matter of this uh, double theme, that uh, the two sets of boys here, Absolutely. there and here, yeah. and I imagine it's applied to CIA and KGB as well. Absolutely. What, I call my book The New Russians, and I did that for two reasons. Number one, there was a book before called The Russians. I want to let people yeah. know this was a new book, but I also did it because there are new Russians. There are Russians who are thinking in new ways. Gorbachev is one of them, partway. Yeltsin is another. The younger generations are another. But there are also old Russians. There are new Americans who are thinking in new ways about the world. And there are also old Americans. And 
what we really need to do now is to hook the new people up with each other on both sides. There's an awful lot we have to learn uh, from them and to teach them. They got a very interesting wrinkle in their elections, by the way, about what we have to learn from them. I never expected to go to the Soviet Union, number one, and ever see an election in which there were multiple candidates. But then they've got some interesting rules that now when people are all upset about Congress and incumbents, and maybe in City Hall here, I don't know, but uh, let me share this with you, Studs. Um, they have a rule in the Soviet Union. They, they give you a ballot, and you, you have all the names of all the candidates. And instead of picking one name that you vote for, you cross out all the names of the candidates you don't like. You are allowed to cross out all the names. You mm. do not have to leave one name. So mm. if you don't like them all, you can cross, cross them all, them all out, out. Right? That's one rule they have. Now, another rule they have is that in order to win an election, you have to get at least 50% of the votes cast. If you go back to the – you put those two rules together and something very interesting thing, uh, very interesting happens. Back when Gorbachev introduced the, the elections, and they were only partial elections and everything wasn't perfect, but nonetheless introduced multiple candidate elections in March of 89, a lot of the Communist Party bosses around the country said, wait a minute, I don't want to play democracy. I'm going to manipulate the process. I'm not going to let anybody be nominated to oppose me. I'm going to run unopposed. Guess what happened? In several dozen important areas around the country, more than 50 percent of the people crossed out the names of the Communist Party bosses. So they lost. They were, they were voted out of being elected to the national legislature. They didn't lose their Communist Party jobs, which were still very important. But they lost. The, rule, the Soviets have a third rule, which is if in the first round there's one candidate or two and neither one gets 50 percent, they can't run in the runoff. You get brand new candidates. Think oh. of what those rules would do to American elections. You don't have to put a limit on the number of terms there are in Congress if you've got rules like that. I'm not saying we've got to adopt the no, Soviet that uh, election system, is, but they've got some they interesting are. wrinkles. They on, are wrinkles. You know? Imagine crossing out all the candidates. That's the name. would of feel world. good. It would <laughs> feel good. But also, if these, neither of these guys get so much, or maybe there was a third guy. Yeah. We haven't thought of a third woman. We have, I better make that, get that straight. We hadn't thought of, you see. That's, you're right, there are interesting wrinkles. Yeah. And speaking of women, uh, I met in Leningrad uh, this unbelievably feisty, wonderful Bolshevik woman who's best when she's fighting other Bolsheviks, mm-hmm. uh, named Bella Kirkova. She's the executive producer of the, of the Soviet equivalent of 60 Minutes. It's called Fifth Wheel oh, in Leningrad. Wheel. Very, very popular mm-hmm. program. Exposes the party elite, mm-hmm. talks to all kinds of people about the past and so forth. The program, as you can imagine, was very unpopular with the Communist Party hierarchy. They kept wanting to shut it down. Every time they'd shut it, want to shut it down, she'd go on the air and make an appeal to keep the public support. People would go out and demonstrate in the streets mm-hmm. to keep the program on the air. Finally, she decided that she couldn't protect herself well enough that way, so she'd have to run for office. And so here's this, this thing yeah. that seems amazing to an American journalist. Wait, wait a minute, a journalist running yeah. for office? I mean, that's a contradiction in terms. She says, no, 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 I got to run for office. She tells me, I gotta, Bella says, I got to run for office to protect my program. So what happens? She runs for office. She gets elected to the Leningrad City Council. Then she runs, you can run for two offices in the Soviet Union. So then she runs for office in the Russian Republic. Mm-hmm. And she gets elected to the Supreme Soviet in the Russian yeah. Republic. She's up there and shaking the show. Fist and helping shape the show, yeah. helping shape the, the laws that mm-hmm. were affect the press, and yeah. she's an ally of Boris Yeltsin, that kind of stuff. So you see women active in the process, uh, in the press, in the politics. Indeed, you mentioned Yeltsin several times, and you do here too. Questions came up when his name first emerged in the, Amer- in the American press. Right. You know, 
remember Vladimir Posner, yeah. uh, who, who was a commentator here, there, on many programs, right. worried about him, spoke of him in a, in a way, a sort of a Huey Long type guy. He is. Yeah. He, you know, he's a very earthy man of the people, charismatic, popular. Mm. I mean, he look at him. Mm. He got five million votes in yeah. the Moscow elections in, of 1989, and the party did everything they could yeah. to defeat him. Mm. And then in the next elections of, of, of 1990, he ran a second time from Sredlovsk, his hometown, his home city out in the Urals. He got a million votes out there. Mm. Gorbachev's afraid of that. Gorbachev yeah. still hasn't run a popular election yet. He hasn't taken that risk. So, so Yeltsin is popular, yeah. and he, his thinking is a lot closer to our thinking in this country yeah. and what he wants to do. But he's, he's also a guy who's thought more of privatization. more privatization, absolutely, more decentralization of mm. power, that kind of stuff. But he's also a somewhat unstable guy. I mean, he, he likes the bottle. Mm. Um, and nobody's quite sure what he would be like if he were actually in charge of the whole thing. So it's a tough bet to see whether or not he would be a successor to Gorbachev. We take our last break. We have to talk about several things, uh, movies, the change there, and also a word or two about what's happening to the nationalities. Oh, boy. Whether it be... Uh, uh, Uzbekistan or Azerbaijan and Armenia, the, as you go to the Lebanon there, right. or Lithuania. And so a man is walking a, a tightrope. Oh, it's uh, unbelievable. Uh, we're talking to Hedrick Smith. The book is The New Russians and Random House, the publishers. So resuming for the last lap, there are so many aspects, <coughs> all, all happening at the same time, mm. at one time. Mm. I, I, movies, of course. There was one particular one that exploded, Repentance. Oh, un great movie. You know, I was talking to a, an American uh, cameraman in Detroit the other day who's a great admirer of Eisenstein, the famous, famous Soviet filmmaker. And he had seen this film, Repentance. It's an allegorical uh, story, movie, done in Georgia, by the way, done mm. under the protection of Shevard Nadze, now the foreign minister, mm. formerly the political boss of Georgia, who permitted more liberalization in Georgia, even under Brezhnev, than was permitted in Moscow. It's a story about a Stalinist figure in Georgia who does all kinds of terrible things, sends people to the desk, digs up graves, does awful things. And there's some scenes in it, Studs, that are terribly moving, particularly for Soviets. At the time of Stalin, when many people were sent up to the forests of northern Siberia, the prisoners used to carve their initials or their names onto the logs of the trees that they felled. And the relatives would go to places down river to look to see whether or not the initials of their loved ones were on the tree stumps because they had no way of communicating with the people in the camps. And there's a scene in this movie of a mother and a daughter clambering over uh, logs by the side of the, of the river. Uh, and people in Soviet movies absolutely just broke down weeping seeing this. And Gorbachev himself, I'm told, wept when he saw this scene. <laughs> So, so it's that kind of a movie. Forty, fifty million people saw this movie. It was a, it was almost like a, a catharsis. This kind of movie. That's the kind of things. I mean, this homecoming about people, about kids who fought in uh, Afghanistan coming home and their reactions of people at home losing their limbs. Documentary movies in the Soviet Union today are really extraordinary. They're very blunt and they're very moving and they're very direct. In some ways, more striking even than fiction because uh, fact over there now is so yeah. stunning. I was thinking I'd say this book of repentance and the and the movies about the homecoming from 
Afghanistan. There was a play called Climbing Mount Fuji yes. by the Asian playwright Matov, the big guy. Yeah, yeah I met And him. that was no about one. the same thing as repentance. There was a gathering of people at a picnic, and then it comes out a couple of them had betrayed. Yeah, we're informers. Yeah, we're informers. Do you know, interesting enough, that, that play was written, I saw that in the 70s. That is a pre-Perestroika play, pre-Glasgow. Yeah, oh, this happened. I saw it quite yeah. a while ago, but that theme comes back... St- Studs, what Americans don't understand is because we made up our mind about Stalin a long time ago, that Stalinism today is a touchstone issue in the Soviet Union. How you feel about Stalin, what you say about Stalin and what he did, whether he had positive or negative influence, tells very much about where you feel about reform today and what, about the future. It's a living issue because they're digging it up for the first time and taking a look at it. Yeah. And so as we near the end of the hour, of course, there is so much we haven't touched. I suppose this... Uh, were fascinated by this man, popular all over the world, yet walking that high wire that seems to be trembling more than ever. Yeah. And, of course, the uh, uh, breaking up oh. of the Soviet Union. You know, what's nationalities. In, what's interesting is I would say, particularly to people in Chicago, that Gorbachev, if he were to come to America and had grown up in the American system, would have been a very effective politician because he's so agile, he's bright, he's willing to learn, he's daring. Uh, he's also conservative, and he, he knows how to move between people of opposite political opinions. But there's one way in which he would fail terribly, and that is ethnic politics. Um, Gorbachev has a tin ear for ethnic politics. He was brought up as a Russian, ethnic Russian, in a very Russian area with very few minorities, and he didn't learn ticket balancing. He didn't learn what, what a Harold Washington or somebody like that has to learn in the city of Chicago, that you've got to include all the groups. So when he took the lid off, and he told the people of the Soviet unions, the 15 different republics, all of different nationalities, Uzbeks, Ukrainians, Armenians, Lithuanians, all that kind of stuff. When he took the lid off, he was surprised by the power of nationalism, that these people would suddenly say, yeah, we want out. We Lithuanians, we were taken over by Stalin's army, and we and the Estonians and Latvians, we want out. He didn't anticipate that. He didn't have a plan. That's his observation that if we an American public wouldn't have understood uh, uh, race or uh, ethnic groups because the matter of Russia and the other republics, Russia's always had that air of superiority. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, well, it's uh, been quote, the... Quote-unquote white superiority. Absolutely. It is, that's definitely true. And, and Gorbachev unconsciously betrays this. He went to Tashkent and Uzbekistan uh, fairly early in his uh, uh, tenure, and he made a couple of slurs about Islam. Mm. These are Islamic peoples. It was not well taken. Uh, In 1986, he put a Russian in charge of Kazakhstan. Now, the rule of Soviet politics is the first secretary of the Communist Party is always a local nationalist. The second one is a Russian, and he's Moscow's man. They've all accepted that, but you don't violate the rule and put a Russian in charge. His wife, when they had the Armenian earthquake, they went down to visit the the victims. She'd just come back from the West and overseas. She shows up in a very fancy fur coat and French perfumes and so forth. It offended the Armenians. He even said something about moving Armenian refugees from the earthquake to Russia. It reminded Armenians of something that had happened earlier in their history where the children at the time of the Turkish massacres of Armenians in 1916 had been sent to Russia and never returned. Hmm. So it smacked of the Russians trying to take over the children. And the Armenians didn't like that. There are a lot of mistakes that he's made. So that's an interesting uh, flaw, that one. Well, he's yeah. got a bunch of them. Yeah. We talked about agriculture. We talked yeah. about halfway house yeah. measures. Now we're talking about nationalities. Yeah. I mean, I happen to think he's a great politician. He's yeah. done great things. But like all of them, 
uh, like all people. Yeah. He's got a lot of flaws, yeah. a lot of errors, so big ones. Where, where does that leave us? Before I ask you to read a certain passage to close it, uh, one of your passages, a word or two as to where, not to be Nostradamus in any way, but yeah. a thought or two. Well, my feeling, uh, Studs, is that we're watching a process of change that will take 20 or 30 or 40 years to unfold. It will go on with or without Gorbachev because it's now stretched into every facet and every region and every generation of the Russian and Soviet populations. Uh, but it is going to be halting. Uh, it's going to be, it's kind of like the opening of Japan back in the 1850s by Commodore Perry. I mean, they opened it to a new world. And there was a glass nose kind of there. And there was a burst forward with the Meiji Restoration for or 10 Peter years. Or Peter the Great. It, or no Peter way. the Great opening up Open to the, the West. window. Opening the window. And yet then it pulls back yeah. after a while. Then it goes further forward. I mean, it's gonna, this is going to take a long time. If, if we expect this to kind of get resolved in the next two years or three years or five years, yeah. uh, we're missing the boat. We're missing the dimensions, yeah. the scale, uh, the and momentous and element of and what I'm we're also seeing. also thinking, if I ask you to lead us, how much we are affected, or at least should be, yeah. you know, Perhaps uh, that one of those passages coming <clears throat> to close, I think. What I wrote was this. Gorbachev has changed our world more definitively than he has changed his own. The transformation that has taken place beyond Soviet borders is irreversible. Eastern Europe's economic future is uncertain, but its political future outside the Soviet empire is not in doubt. Gorbachev's acquiescence in the reunification of Germany and its membership in NATO cannot be revoked by a successor in the Kremlin. A political and historic divide has been crossed. You know, it's not so clear inside his country, but I also believe that the path of history has been bent in Russia. They can retrench, but they can never go back to Stalinism. They can never go back to the high totalitarian rule that they had. Conservatives may push him out. He may turn conservative, but the dynamic is yeah. there. It's moving forward. Well, if that is so, and obviously that is so, it appears to be so, definitely, then there has to be a change here, too. <laughs> the very nature, since we, our mentality has been overwhelmingly since the end of World War II, a Cold War mentality, in which every domestic act almost was affected, wondering about what will happen with our relationship with them, how will they figure. If that's out of the picture, then the very nature of our society must alter somewhat in its emphasis. I agree. Uh, Studs, let me leave you with one sure. final thought. Gorbachev has riveted our attention because we're worried about our survival with a nuclear power we got to pay attention the story there has riveted our attention because it's the story of human transformation of progress from darkness to light from sick to well i mean it's a, it's a story that novelists and historians you yourself have told again and again but also it's striking because they are confronting the most difficult most painful most vexing most insoluble problems of their society they're doing it publicly and we're all watching now, studs, I always thought that was the strength of a democracy, not a dictatorship. If they're doing that, why the heck aren't we? Yeah, <laughs> we got it. We need more Vitaly Karatages here, too. Yeah, blunt. <laughs> Let's hit it. Are we worried about the you know, social well, they cohesion? Can do it. Why can't we? Here comes a remarkable switch. Now, that's the switch. That's the O'Henry touch to it, <laughs> right there. The O'Henry touch. And this is the new Russians of Hedrick Smith, and it's a Random House, and it's definitely available. Thank you very much. Studs, it's always a pleasure to talk to you.